All right. Hey, hey, everyone. So today we're going to start with uh, Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. So this episode is going to cover the preface, the introduction, and the first kind of chapter titled Consciousness. So I'm going to include timestamps. So if you're just interested in one of those things, then you'll be able to find uh, it easy enough. I'll probably timestamp the subchapters as well, just to make it as easy as, as possible. Uh, but before we hop into this, you'll be able to find this on Podbean in podcast form for anyone interested in that. It's a lot more convenient, I know. Uh, and also, my Patreon is up there if anyone is interested in that. Obviously, don't feel obliged, but if you want a good chuckle, I added some funny goals that you might get a kick out of. Now, without further ado, because we got a really, there's a lot to say about this, let's hop right into it here. So we're going to start with the preface. Now, the preface was written after the book was completed. Uh, which is important because it it's kind of reflecting on something that, that is done, a completed project. So in that way, there are things presented in the preface that only become apparent later on in the book. So I'm going to use this as a kind of pedagogical function or treat it as such because it'll give us a kind of opportunity to see what the end goal will be like. Now, that'll make it a lot easier for us to understand the kind of process by which we get there. So all the things that we're going to be talking about, which can be quite confusing, I think will make a lot more sense if we have an idea of what the end goal is. And I should say as well, as far as the title goes, that is the Phenomenology of Spirit, that wasn't the only title that uh, Hegel actually wanted. In fact, I don't even think he wanted this title. So there are a few more things to say. An another translation into the English could have been phenomenology of mind. Now that has a very different connotation um, and I think it contributes to a lot of the confusion about this book because when we think of spirit versus mind, you know, they connote very different things. Now for Hegel himself, he actually gave it two other possible titles. One was, uh, I believe, science of the phenomenology of spirit and the other was, I believe, science of the experience of consciousness. Uh, if I'm thinking right. Yeah, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's Science of the Experience of Consciousness. Now, these alter alternate titles can give us a little bit of a peek about what the project is trying to do. Because with a title like The Phenomenology of Spirit, you know, we're left with some confusion right off the bat. Firstly, what is phenomenology? Roughly, I'll say, phenomenology is the study of appearances. What is more, Phenomenology is also attributed with the study of how appearances affect people to some extent and how people that affect appearances. Uh, now, that's a very quick way to put it, but anyways. And spirit is a very difficult thing because in very many ways, how he's discussing it here is completely dissociated from any kind of religious uh, connotation. So if we think of the, the title as one of the alternates, take, for instance, science of the experience of consciousness, uh, perhaps in general, then we have a very different kind of entry point into this book. And that is the title I kind of want to draw our attention to because it, it is much more uh, relevant to what the book is trying to do. That is, it is trying to discover a science of consciousness itself. Specifically, it is trying to find out what is, what is it about experience that is completely necessary for consciousness. So to put it in other terms, I guess we could say that it is not possible for there to be uh, a conscious being without a thing be that for that being to be conscious of. And there can't be a thing that is not being cognized or is not being made conscious of. So at the beginning of his preface, he says that he, he wants to try and get away from the realm of philosophy loving to know, to move from that into the domain of actual knowing. So there's a difference here for him between uh, love of knowing and actual, actual knowing. So we'll see throughout the course of this book what that looks like or what that transformation looks like. But I will say, and this is kind of the real kicker, is that this process never ends. Okay, so for Hegel, it is not as though we can arrive at a point at which, you know, we've actually arrived at actual knowing. Now, there are 
possible kind of um, stops along the way, but we can't ever say the project is completed. So then what's the point? Well, he says that while we might not be totally interested in the endpoint, what we are interested in is the very process itself. And in fact, the process itself might be the thing we're kind of striving towards. Now that thing we're striving towards can take on a number of different forms for him. One of them might be absolute spirit, for instance, or absolute um, religion or, or you know, a, bu a bunch of other possible terms that we'll get to eventually. But for him, he defines spirit, or he says that spirit is always engaged in moving forward. So this process of moving forward assumes a kind of a telos, okay? Uh, in that it's it, a telos, coming from the word, I guess, teleology, is the study of movement from, you know, point A to point B in a linear fashion. So he says that it's kind of like a telos, but, you know, a hardcore, hardcore Hegelian out there might say, whoa, 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 this thing is not no, quite as neat as a telos suggests. What I mean when I say that there is a telos relates exactly to what he says here, where he says that the new world, whatever world might come out of this process, uh, it must contain the wealth, the wealth of previous existence. So it is always tied to some extent to previous knowledge, previous existence, previous being that preceded it. And it is this constant process. Now I understand it as a telos in that way, precisely because it cannot detach itself from its past. Its past is always the cause of whatever comes to be in effect. And through that process, we move throughout history. Now, things go awry and things move in very uh, strange ways at times, kind of troubling the idea that it's linear. But nevertheless, it is always coming from this kind of previous moment. So because this kind of spirit or this kind of quote-unquote endpoint, which is not really an endpoint, can't be made manifest. We can only kind of think of it in pure terms. So the way that I've just been discussing it here, I've sketched it to some extent, like I've, I've attributed a term to it that is spirit, but we can't really imagine it. it it's kind of outside of our um, purview. That is because it doesn't lend itself to our faculties of uh, perception or sense or understanding quite yet. And we're going to get into more you know, on those in a little bit. But for now, what we are kind of left with, and here is when he introduces a, a pretty important term in this book, is rather the notion of the thing. The notion of the thing that stands in for uh, the thing itself to some extent. Now we work with the notion of the thing because it uh, we can make sense of it. Now there's something to be said here, and I, I got this from a secondary source, that the translation into the term notion by the in the version I have by um, A.V. Miller is not the best term. In fact, concept would have been a much better term. Now, for, you know, anyone listening, uh, the, the difference between notion and concept are both similar and dissimilar. But I think it's important to keep it on the back burner that, in fact, the term concept could be replaced or could replace uh, the term notion. So the relationship between what he calls the new world, a world that might come out of this process, uh, the relationship that that has to the notion kind of goes as follows here. And this is on page seven. He says, but this new world is no more a complete actuality then is a newborn child. It is essential to bear this in mind. It comes on the scene for the first time in its immediacy or its notion. Just as little as a building is finished when its foundation has been laid, so little is the achieved notion of the whole, the whole itself. So once, and this is how I understand it, once we've established that there is, you know, that possibility of the new world, the possibility of spirit, the possibility of you know the absolute or, or the true for him. That is only kind of the first step, the setting the foundation. That doesn't actually give us the thing itself. So what does phenomenology have to do with this? Phenomenology is a rather slippery term. Uh, and the reason I say that is because 
if we think about phenomenology between, um, you know, Kant, Hegel, Husserl, uh, Heidegger, um, you know, and then we get into the feminist stuff like, you know, Helen Fielding or uh, Sarah Ahmed, like phenomenology is taken up in Merleau-Ponty is taken up in a number of different ways that do not lend, does not lend itself to a kind of clear, easy understanding. So what I will say here to kind of give us a base to understand uh, what he means by phenomenology, let's just take it as an interaction between a seeing subject, so not just seeing, but a seeing, feeling, uh, sensual, they sense the world, uh, subject that experiences the world. Now, for Hegel, that's only the kind of the first step. It is important to recognize that there is a relationship between the world and the, the subject, but that it's kind of naive to say that these two things are separate. So we know from Immanuel Kant, so for more on that, you know, I did go read Immanuel Kant first, but I did um, a number of videos on his first critique, that is the critique of pure reason, that could explain this a little more. But Kant shows pretty, um, you know, pretty tightly that there is a very firm relationship between the subject and between the world object being seen or being uh, experienced. So phenomenology is the study of the interaction between what is outside of the seeing, experiencing subject and the world being seen or experienced. Now, the two play upon one another, and Hegel recognizes this. However, Hegel says that, well, when can we turn that kind of critical gaze, or maybe just gaze, let's, let's take out the word critical for now, for the subject, and reflect it back onto itself? So what can the subject learn about itself by not just, you know, looking at the outside world, but turning that kind of potential onto itself. So this creates a very interesting moment. So what was once understood as a kind of subject and object split, where there's a subject that sees the world, the world is object, Hegel says that in this moment when the subject look, looks back on themselves, they then embody both the subject and object position because they are seeing and they are seeing themselves as object. This is what he calls, on page 10, uh, the reflection of otherness in itself. So, in a, a seeing being, or in a, another object, another seeing being, you know, what have you. Now, what this allows for, and this is one of the really crucial moments, points, is that if a subject is always looking upon itself as a kind of subject and as an object, what that allows for is a kind of mobility. Because if the subject was just taken as either subject or object without a kind of fluid dynamic between the two, then they would be caught in a kind of state of arrested development. Because if they were just seeing the world and they weren't able to actually turn any of that data into something for them, then they would just be uh, stagnant. Whereas if they were just an object, they wouldn't have that the same thing. They wouldn't have that capacity to change. So he's really drawing attention to how uh, this this idea of process, in a like broad historical way, as we've kind of laid it out, should also be located within the infinitesimal. In this case, the subject. The subject also goes through these kinds of transformations. Now this is going to get even smaller and smaller as we get into the first uh, chapter. But for now, I think it's pretty pretty clear what we have here. So he continues by saying that this kind of tension that a subject experiences between themselves as subject and object gives them actuality for him. It is what makes them uh, uh, real. And it lends itself to reason. Now, reason is something we're going to get to later on, but it's just the kind of recognition that uh, one's ability to cognize the world does not just happen kind of on its own, right? Or, well, I... Okay, let me rephrase that. It happens on its own, but for us to arrive at a higher point, that is through to spirit, we must become aware of that. We must become aware of it through reason, which we will arrive at at some point. Now, it's important here to make a distinction between 
two very important terms that each kind of expand into a number of other terms uh, in order to kind of make sense of this process so far. So there's being in itself and being for itself. So when something is in itself, it has a, some it has a, an essence. Now that essence is only measured in relation to other things that are recognized as being in itself. So the thing does not actually comprehend itself. It does not, you know, care about itself. It is only seen from without and determined as such not on the merit of what it is as, you know, having certain properties or characteristics or a kind of uh, consciousness or self-consciousness, it is instead only measured because we know that it is not, you know, this thing. We know that uh, the shoe is not the table because we know that the shoe is not the table and it ends there. Whereas being for itself posits that each one of these things, for example, has the capacity, a kind of their own subjectivity, their own individuality to some extent, that is always aware of itself always um, kind of conscious of itself. So it's not just a kind of passive uh, thing to be seen in the world. It is its own kind of autonomous being. So that's the split between being in itself and being for itself. Now he likens this process to a kind of science. Now I must be clear, uh, and only if you read this book would you would you know this, but some terms are used with a capital letter and sometimes they aren't. Sometimes they're italicized, sometimes they're not. And they're meant to uh, connote different things depending on how they're spelled or how they're um, kind of presented in their writing. So he kind of equates this to a science, but he means science with a capital S in kind of like pure uh, science and then it's always moving. He doesn't mean it in the sense that, oh, it's, uh, you know, proven science, and therefore we can just forget about it and, you know, move on. Because that, or this reveals another tension that he's uh, kind of drawing attention to, and that is his appreciation of philosophy over mathematics. Because whereas he sees mathematics as being almost uh, completed, having, you know, various rules and axioms that are... Um, and we'll get into this with some examples later. Uh, he sees, like, uh, the Pythagorean theorem as being, um, you know, a kind of truth. He's not interested in it. He's like, you know, that's, I don't care that we've established that. What I'm interested in is what is to come. What I'm interested in is everything that can be put into tension with another thing in order to produce a kind of uh, consequential result. So when he refers to science here, it shouldn't be understood as a kind of like uh, like truth that we've already arrived at. Rather, he's interested in it in terms of form. What can we take from science's form that can relate to this process? So in his words, and this is on page 13, knowledge is only actual, and it, it can only be expounded as science or as system. And he continues, he says, uh, the true is actual, only as a, as a system and that the and to define the actual for him he says that the actual is when something is other being that is it's not uh, it's not itself and it is also being for itself so let's think back to this idea of the subject as being both uh, something that thinks itself and something that is thought by an outside by another where it's both an active subjective being that is able to turn that subjective gaze onto themselves and to others, and is at the same time something being seen by itself and by others. Okay, so now we know that the, in his words, that the spirit is is science because the spirit is the process, and the process he, he kind of equates to a kind of science, which he says he defines as a pure self recognition in absolute otherness. So he's going to go on, and this is, this is later, and, and I'm trying really hard to kind of deliver this in a, in a systematic way that makes sense linearly, but uh, I have to make reference to what's going to come because otherwise, you know, you wonder why I'm bringing this up. But when it comes down to it for him, or what he tries to show is that there is a fundamental similarity between all things that are considered separate. 
or all things that are considered different from one another. Because if they if there wasn't a kind of connecting unity, then his his project would be uh, would be done because he wouldn't be able to posit there to be a kind of spirit that connects all things that can be kind of uh, unearthed or can be kind of made uh, made real to some extent. But he pretty much says that the universal thing that connects all things is the fact that they are all different, is the fact that they are all um, actually not part of a unity. So I say that because it's important to know before we actually get into arguing that, which comes in more, I guess, in the first chapter. But anyways, I kind of digress. So let's move back to this uh, discussion of science. So he says that science, and this is one of the things that Hegel does pretty often, um, he says that science is by no means, when he's even discussing it in as, as system, it's by no means settled. So what he means by that is that it would be totally naive to assume that science is just this thing that exists out in the world that we can just call upon to move us towards this spirit or to act as what he calls a ladder towards this kind of spirit. Instead, he says that science itself is always at in a kind of struggle with itself very much like the subject. So we cannot claim that it's a kind of settled thing because that would be totally naive and that would throw apart his whole system. So anything we kind of traverse through in this book is we have to keep in mind that it's going to be in tension with itself and is going to have very many different properties because of that. And we're going to get into more in the first chapter, but it's good to kind of know that off the bat because if anyone's plans on reading this, uh, you know, you'll be going through and you'll see that or feel that Hegel has a pretty uh, fond appreciation of something, let's say um, the understanding, just an example. But then, you know, a few pages later, you're like, wait a second. Now it seems to be like he doesn't like it, like he admonishes it. He sees it as being a limitation. So there's always these tensions going on in this text, and that's what we can, I guess we can really applaud Hegel for, in that he um, walks the walk, right? He says exactly what his system needs to do, and he replicates that. He doesn't want to make it settled. He doesn't want to give us a final solution. And that is never present in the terms he, he uses, which is why there's so much confusion about this book, because it is a very difficult book, and there's by no means, like the single way to understand it. So to continue on with science here, what it has done for us is is that it has existed in the past and it has given us kind of facts. Now, I mentioned earlier, Hegel's not so much interested in facts, but he is interested in the way that facts can, you know, exist behind us and in a kind of present and how they can motivate us to some extent because we can draw upon facts in the past to develop things, to move them, because we know where we've come, and by virtue of that, it gives us a kind of momentum to keep going in another direction. For example, Euclidean geometry did not um, stop, or did not was not the final word on geometry, but it was in many ways a kind of base that was necessary to open up, you know, for very wonderful things, all the way up to Albert Einstein and 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 further on. And he kind of he calls these facts or these things that exist kind of exterior to subjects uh, inorganic nature. And he says that education, and I think here he really means like, you know, in schools, uh, education should make the individual aware of these inorganic of this inorganic nature, these kind of facts that exist, while at the same time giving them the kind of faculty to recognize universal spirit, that is their capacity to look in upon themselves, to motivate a kind of self-perpetual movement, kind of always becoming. So history contributes to this because history makes all previous accounts kind of understandable. Whereas if we didn't have a history, it'd be very difficult to imagine having having a future because history is what is bound up exactly with every single uh, moment. Now, history is important because it translates all the kind of previous points into kind of individual instances that happened and changes them into something that can be consumed for the people of the present so that they themselves can move in a kind of new way. 
Now, if the things in the past just existed in the past, they would have no kind of uh, causality. They would have no kind of uh, effectual possibility onto the now or onto people as they are. So this process is always motivating us to take us away from the kind of closed systems that we are so privy to. So he gives us some examples like God, nature, understanding, things that we just take to exist as being like in themselves and that do not affect us or uh, we affect it like they're already determined that he has no kind of um, patience for. So when we think of the development or the process of the human or a kind of perceiving being, there is always the end point to that, right? So we can think of this in terms of history. Perhaps history will have an end point. I don't know. But as far as what the human goes through, it has a pretty definitive endpoint. That is death. And death serves a pretty instrumental function for Hegel here because it serves as what he calls a kind of negativity. So I want to read a little section here from page 19. He says, death, if that is what we want to call this non-actuality, is of all things the most dreadful. And to hold fast what is dead requires the greatest strength. Lacking strength, Beauty hates the understanding for asking of her what it cannot do. But the life of spirit is not the life that shrinks from death and keeps itself untouched by devastation, but rather the life that endures it and maintains itself in it. It wins its truth only when, in utter dismemberment, it finds itself. So what I want to say about that is that, um, or actually I'm going to read one more little thing here, a few lines down, where he says that spirit is this power only by looking the negative in the face and tarrying with it. So what I want to say about this is that we can take this absolute negative point, what he calls a non-actuality, precisely because we need to if we are going to remain faithful to his system. So, so far, if we have a subject that is both um, witnessing themselves and being witnessed, and there's that tension, he calls that, as I mentioned earlier, actuality. That is what it takes to be actual. Now, death being the end of that must then usher in the non-actual. But because we're dealing here with oppositions, the actual must be opposed by the non-actual, and they must, in fact, engage with one another in some way, very much like the subject engages with their subjectivity as well as their objectivity. They're being seen as an object. So it's only when we are able to take this non-actuality and make it a part of our actuality, can we keep this process of uh, perpetual self-movement going. So what will happen here is uh, the subject will lose interest in what he, what he says here, this or that object, and will be wholly invested in what he calls the complete process of becoming. Now this kind of takes on another, a few other forms, where he calls this uh, a simple oneness of knowing, where the object or negativity becomes part of spirit becomes part of you know subject to seeing but also he calls it the logic of speculative philosophy now that'll come in quite a bit later but still it's something we'll keep on the back burner that is the logic of speculative philosophy the, the logic of uh kind of imaginative un you know currently unknown philosophy so some of the implications of this introducing negativity into a kind of positivity or non-actuality into actuality uh, can be seen in a, in a few different ways. So it makes the distinction, for example, between facts or between truth and falsehood, uh, it troubles that distinction in order to say that we cannot have truth without falsehood and we cannot have falsehood without truth. So for those, he's kind of speaking to people that would want to get rid of falsehood, get rid of negativity. He says all that would do is would get rid of uh, truth and it would kind of put us into a state of arrested development, ending the kind of possibility for becoming. So this is why facts to him are not interesting because they can't be refuted. They're caught in a state of arrested development, whereas he says that philosophical truths can in fact be refuted and can therefore move throughout, through space and through time. So the same holds true for mathematics where he gives the example of a triangle and says that the relationship that all right angle triangles share is not known by a triangle. It is only known by humans because this doesn't exist out in the world. 
How many triangles does actually one see in the world? Perfect triangles that just happen to exist in nature. Like it doesn't happen. We, we've implemented it architecturally, but we, you don't, just don't see triangles lying around. We've, we've created this concept and we've attributed it to, you know, triangles, which kind of forecloses a sort of development for Hegel. So what is the essence of a triangle? So let's throw out some properties here. Triangle has three sides. Uh, all the angles of a triangle have to equal 180 degrees. Um, let's say we're dealing with a right angle triangle. There is a direct relationship between uh, two sides to the longest hypotenuse side. If we're dealing with an isosceles triangle, you know, uh, all the sides are equal, I believe, as far as uh, length goes, and so on and so forth. Now, what that means for Hegel is that we are kind of um, dismembering, I believe he calls it. We're dismembering the triangle in order to make sense of the triangle because we can't just be satisfied with a triangle existing on its own with its own essence. No, we have to imbue it with a number of different characteristics in order to make sense of it. Now, he says that that's a problem because then it ceases to be the triangle and it becomes what he calls a lifeless unity. That is a unity of a number of properties that are not imminent. That is, they are not actually found by the triangle itself. So the task of science is for him to recognize what he calls the life of the object, whereas a kind of narrow understanding would instead try to, what the translator translated to as pigeonhole, that is to kind of um, shut away any possible uh, pro uh, uh, negativity into, or any um, possible uh, contradictory parts of it to make it just a kind of pure, uh, perfect thing, which degrades it into something lifeless. So to think in terms of science instead is to, for him, think in terms of the notion. Now, these are the simple determinations for him, and some of the, and they are as follows. They are the being in itself, the being for itself, and self-identity. And that the notion of oneself should not infringe upon the notion of another self because of that, the tension that that would create, but instead to recognize that every notion, because the, the notion or the concept is all we can really know of the thing. Um, and it is for that reason that we can only relate to it in that way, because that is taking it for Hegel on it as close to its own terms as we can. Now, what makes up our notion? Well, for Hegel, it has a lot to do with the kinds of things that determine us, the kind of properties that, you know, exist within us. So he says here on page 39, that thinking therefore loses the firm objective basis it had in the subject when, in the predicate, it is not thrown back onto the subject, and when, in the predicate, it does not return into itself, but into the subject of the content. So the predicate is the thing describing, identifying the subject. So here, if I'm understanding it right, what he's suggesting is that um, there's a kind of firm relationship between what determines the subject and the subject itself. And the two go hand in hand. Now, for him, he wants to get rid of the idea that the primacy or the precedence is given to the subject and to then posit that, you know, we are as much determined by these other things as we determine them. So he gives an example that he doesn't like to refer to um, kind of God as on its own because that's a kind of closed system. He, he instead says that, for example, God is being, or is being is the, the predicate or being is the predicate which becomes here the essence of God, not simply a characteristic. So there is a kind of fluid dynamic between the thing that is said to determine the subject and the subject itself. So there's an organic relationship there. Now, only once this has been realized, has this been kind of embraced, can a con continual becoming happen? Because as soon as you take on these predicates, these kind of properties, or accept that these properties are as much a part of you as you are a part of them, then it kind of opens up the door for a kind of perpetual becoming because you're taking on all of these different attributes at every given time. Okay, that's a kind of general overview of the preface that is a general overview of the book itself. Now that pushes us here into the introduction. So he begins the, the introduction by um, 
dissuading a characterization of consciousness as either a medium through which to see the absolute or as an instrument to make it accessible. Because these two ideas that treat the consciousness as just a kind of means toward the absolute too neatly um, uh, split consciousness from the absolute. So this book then is an investigation, he says, almost into consciousness and cognition because he thinks that those things are inextricably wrapped up with this absolute, kind of absolute spirit, the thing that connects everything and that keeps things in you know, movement to some extent. And he, he continues by saying that consciousness, the thing we're trying to investigate, is the thing that simultaneously distinguishes itself from something while relating it to it. So it is in this way that consciousness constitutes the outside world as well as the outside world constitutes consciousness because it couldn't exist without consciousness and consciousness couldn't exist without it. But at the same time, and there's this kind of tension here reading this, that he seems to say that, you know, these things do exist out there, right? Uh, they, they exist and we can perceive them. But they don't exist prior to consciousness yet. You know, reading it, you can't help but feel like he is, in fact, saying that they do exist prior to consciousness. Anyways, anyways, I digress. Okay, so when we discuss this in terms of the individual, right? Because we're dealing with individual instances here where consciousness individually recognizes a thing individually at an individual moment. We need to kind of clarify what that means. So when he refers to individuality, uh, he means it in the sense that there's a kind of universal and general experience being made manifest in a single moment. So everything that is individual does not in itself exist individually. Rather, it is the kind of manifestation of everything universal in a single instance. So that'll come to make sense as we go on. But for now, that's what we have here. And it is, I will add, it's for that reason that we can't actually truly be sure of the characteristics of an object, but can only be sure of that kind of individual uh, understanding of it, perception of it. Now, what's interesting here, and this is, I like this part, uh, is that he says that consciousness is not always satisfied with what it sees in the world. So if you're conscious of something, you have an idea of it, you might at some point grow to disagree with that, uh, that kind of conscious understanding of it. Now, what he says is that that's totally natural. It's totally normal. And that that is the basis of experience. Because he doesn't want consciousness to be totally satisfied with something forever and for always. Instead, he wants this continual development. He wants this movement. Now, he also calls this the being for consciousness of the in itself. So there's a thing out there in itself that is recognized in relation to other things that we see for consciousness as as it is in itself that alters that consciousness, that can move it. So he kind of wraps up this introduction, and yeah, the introduction is pretty short compared to the preface, by saying that consciousness's journey is pretty much characterized, uh, or consciousness's journey through experience is the entire realm of the truth of spirit for him, in his words, and that's on page 56, or absolute knowledge. Now it's on that note, we'll move into chapter one here, consciousness. And the first subcategory, subchapter, sense certainty. So he says that sense certainty is comprised kind of primarily of seeing and hearing. But we can really attribute all the senses to this. And this is dealing really with the as neutral as possible experience that a subject has in relation to the world. So when you're, you know, toddler, you're just taking in raw data from the world. That is your sense certainty of it. Uh, And you are, in a sense, affected by it. And you come to internalize all those different data, those data points that only with time can you come to make sense of. Now, he says at this point, that is in sense certainty, is when there's the most truth of the object being understood by the subject, because we're not burdened by, you know, prejudice, by our understanding, by consciousness, by, you know, our history. We are just taking things as they are, as they are presenting themselves to us. So this is a necessary step and one we must all go go through, but Hegel's not interested in it. 
because it doesn't say anything about consciousness and it doesn't say anything about a kind of like phenomenological interaction. It's just a one-way, like, um, a one-way entry of sense data into the person, you know, sensing. So that's a kind of quick way to argue what he's doing here, but he goes into more detail. So let's, let's follow him along here because that's what we do here. So he gives the example of what he calls the now and the this. Oh, sorry, no, sorry. The here and the now, sorry. Which is a spatial and a temporal uh, determination. Where spatial being the here, like in this place, and the now in time being a temporal one. So in day-to-day -day chat uh, with, you know, other people, someone might ask, what time is it? And you could say, now it is 9.21. Random time, doesn't matter. Ten minutes later, the same person could ask, what time is it? And you'd say, it is now 9.31. Let's say in that time you were driving, and when it was 9.21, the person asked, where are we? Well, we are, you know, in Albuquerque. And then ten minutes later, we're in New Haven. I have no idea. This is totally random. So the here and the now in, the, in these examples radically alters over the course of both time and space. So what was once taken as a truth, which no one could refute, so it is now 921, we know that to be the fact, then leaves us. The now is kind of like an unfaithful servant because the now then becomes the 931. So the now ceases to be the determination of a, a time or a play or here a determination of a place and it is then revealed to be what it really is a kind of subjective you know determination of a specific time and a specific place so you might say okay so what what does that matter well hegel takes this to make a broader statement that the accumulation of all here's and nows that is, all experiences, all moments, are all separate. But the guiding thing is that, or the universal attribute, is exactly that they're all separate. That they're all individual uh, experiences, individual instances in a whole map, in a whole kind of orchestra of here's and now's. So if we kind of uh, change our view about the, about the idea of here and now, from being like something that tells us something universal about a single moment, we can then retain the idea that they are universal, but in a different way. So when we understand the here and now to be universal in its specificity, there are always specific moments, then we can understand it as what he calls a mediating simplicity or a kind of simplicity or a universality. Now, this troubles the kind of implicit connection we had to anything the here and now told us. So he says, but this, in his words, this is on 61. He says, but this pure being is not an immediacy, but something to which negation and mediation are essential. Consequently, it is not what we mean by being, but is being defined as an abstraction or as the pure universal. And our meaning for which the true content of sense certainty is not the universal is all that is left over in face of this empty or indifferent here and now. So whereas previously in, in sense certainty, as we characterized it earlier, where there's like an outside world that is determining us, throwing data at us, now he says that we can reverse the script and now the outside world is indeterminate precisely because the categories through which we understand it, you know, here's and now's, are by no means, you know, um, uh, true per se, we can then flip the switch and say that, well, in fact, that outside world doesn't seem to be quite as, you know, neutral, uh, always present, you know, as we, as we thought it to be. Now, this problem continues when we understand that there is not a kind of single individual experiencing the world. There are many. So there's not only many worlds experienced to some extent, there are also many individuals, many subjects experiencing it. So the kind of easy idea that, you know, there is a world and there's a subject perceiving the world 
is suddenly thrown into question because we explode those categories. So here we arrive at a pretty interesting point and an important one. For any of those interested in Zizek's work, you will be familiar with this term. The negation of the negation, or to negate the, the, the negation. So Hegel says that when we say something is now, let's say the example he gives is that now is night. That is a negation for him because it completely closes off every other thing that the now can be and every other now that the thing can be. So there is implicit within that characterization of a now or a here, a negation. When I said it was 921 in Albuquerque, that meant it was not 1013 in New Mexico, for example. So there is a negation there. Now what Hegel calls for, precisely because that doesn't get us anywhere if we just think about things in their specificity like that, he says we have to negate the negation in order to look at the universal, the whole. So instead of it being all these specific moments, we need to negate that specificity, think about it in terms of the universal, where now it's not all these specific moments, it is instead a universal comprised of specific moments, then we can get the project going. Then we can get moving into the commonality, the kind of um, guiding thread for everything. So for those that you know might not think I'm wrong, uh, let me read what he says. So this is on page 63. He writes, In this pointing out, then, we see merely of movement, which takes the following course. Number one, I point out the now, and it is asserted to be the truth. I point it out, however, as something that has been, or as something that has been superseded. I therefore set aside the first truth because it's past. It's no longer now. Now, number two, I now assert as the second truth that it has been, that it is superseded. And number three, but what has been is not, because it ceased to be. I set aside the second truth, it's having been, it's supersession, and thereby negate the, the negate the negation of the now, and thus return to the first assertion that the now is. The now and pointing out the now are thus so constituted that neither the, flip the page on the 64, neither the one nor the other is something immediate and simple, but a movement which contains various moments. What he calls then a plurality of here's and a plurality of now's that are part parcel of this universal plurality. So this shows the kind of limitation of us describing anything at all. Because number one, if we describe something, we are kind of uh, consolidating it, we are freezing it in time and space. Um, and then number two, if we describe something, we are inevitably describing it with language, and we use uh, like an article or a in indefinite uh, pronoun, I guess, like this. So we say this thing or this this lamp, which stands in for, you know, to our in our mind. We we aren't conscious of this, but it then gives a characteristic to all this is. So what he calls this is, not this is, but T-H-I-S-E-S, -E -S. this is, this plural, all this is are then the lamp, because I haven't made, uh, uh, you know, a distinction, and it follows syllogistically, that is logically, that if I say this is the lamp, or this is a lamp, then all this is are lamps. So he says that we're doomed if we think about it in those terms, and we have to step back and recognize that when we use language like that, it isn't totally neutral. When we use language like that, we are engaging in a kind of assumption about thisness. This is, oh God, it's good stuff. I hope you're following along so far. So for him, all that we can say that's like really true with language is that something is an actual thing. It's like a maybe. There's there's a there is a thing out there, and that thing is thing. And that's all. So all we can really do then is focus on the operation of universality, or in other words, our ability to comprehend things as whole, not it, not in their like specificity and here's and nows. Okay, so that pushes us here. We're still in consciousness, that is the first chapter, but from sense certainty to perception. 
And this is where consciousness first enters the scene. So perception sees in an object a mix of as many properties that it perceives. So there are, or these are the universal properties that have some out of the universal um, uh, to meet for a moment in their unity in the object. So all the properties come together. It's a kind of party for properties in the, in the, in the unity in the object. But the subject recognizes this kind of fractured unity. And we're going to get into more examples of this as we go. But let's say we see a, a chair. Chair is white. Let's say it's a white chair. A chair is white with four legs and, you know, it's, it's three feet tall, whatever. All of these things come together to form the object. Now those things come to stand in for the object, which gives us a kind of fractured identity of that object. Now, so far, we've established that there's a phenomenological association between object and between seeing subject. So therefore, that calls into question the assumed um, kind of unity of the subject themselves, where they too become fractured in that process. So perception is universal for him. Everyone perceives and everyone organizes based on what they are perceiving. They make sense of it in their brain. Perception is that knowing that when you see, um, for example, a tree, and this is an example I used in the Kant videos, when you see a tree, you know not to run away in fear, not because you think that, whereas when you see a bear, you know to run away in fear, and it's not like you think about it, you just know. Like you have been kind of indoctrinated into a world that you've now made sense of, over time, a baby doesn't run away in fear from a bear, only through this kind of process of learning where you now are able to perceive a thing and kind of code it according to your previous history that we see this kind of perception happening. Now in this relationship, it is pretty well traditionally understood that the subject is inessential and that the object is essential the subject can change the subject can supposedly alter whereas the objects out in the world just kind of exist they are out there waiting to be seen waiting to be kind of taken up in consciousness now to kind of reiterate what we went over in sense certainty he says here that perception kind of perceives things belonging to various universals like here's and now's and that uh, through that we kind of um, place them under an umbrella of knowing like things in, uh, determined by their space, by their by their time, by, by anything like that. And this properly constitutes what he calls the thing. So a capital T thing. Now the negation of these universals, which we've already seen, so to negate the negation, um, foreclose other possibilities. Uh, so they must be negated to return to the whole, which is, you know, back to that universal that we've already described. So because he says that the objects out there are essential and the subject is not, then the subject is kind of valuable. It's kind of uh, susceptible to error. So because of that, he says that the subject is always only ever looking upon itself because it can't claim to really know the object. All it can really know is itself. And it might see this itself in the object. So that's all the subject can really be absolutely sure of. Now, what's interesting is that if we say that the object is doing the same thing, so to make it easy, let's put two different people together here, two different people in a room. Each of them can be said to be undergoing this kind of process where one looking at the other does not know that thing, right? It kind of knows its appearance. It's kind of service, service, surface uh, appearance, but doesn't know everything that constitutes that thing for itself in its own mind. So what is happening here is that we are recognizing that we are incapable of seeing that thing. So we kind of take recourse into ourselves as being a place that we know, which without us even knowing it actually helps us understand the thing because there's that connection between us and the thing, the object, the other. And it's through that, and we, we aren't aware of this, and this is what Hegel's trying to draw our attention to, is that by looking upon ourselves, as subjects, looking upon ourselves as objects, we can actually get a better sense of the thing, which connects in some way. It gives a kind of oneness to that interaction. So the one for him is defined as follows. He says that, but it is not as a one that it excludes others from itself. 
For to be a one is the universal relating of self to self. And the fact that it is a one rather makes it like all others. It is through its determinateness that the thing excludes others. Things are therefore in and for themselves determinate. They have properties by which they distinguish themselves from others. So, yeah, I can stop that passage there. Where the oneness kind of, sorry, the oneness kind of uh, encapsulates the interaction between, you know, two things. What is it that is similar between them? And it is in that way that we become what he calls the universal medium. Because we see all things through our own eyes, through our own perception, which we then make sense of. And we see ourselves through that. So the thing is constituted by both the many less, what he calls the many less one, which is the kind of totality that binds all things, as well as the also, which is the plane of kind of possibilities. So let's say like a person, uh, they are six feet tall. They are also, um, I don't know, 170 pounds. They also have brown hair. They also have, um, you know, a chiseled jaw, you know, whatever where all these properties come together in their kind of plurality that all come together in this unity. So it's a unity comprised of, uh, um, comprised of difference. Now, any given thing is not just recognized in and of itself as having properties and belonging to oneness. As I mentioned earlier, when we're dealing with something in itself, it is an in itself in relation to other things in itself. Now, this is what he calls the unconditioned universality. The unconditioned being the thing that binds all of them, that is, the fact that they are all on their own, individual, self-things. That binds everything, but that's not conditioned by anything. It's just, it, it is the, their property that comes from always, and that is always already there. And it is only when this has been realized that there's, there are all these tensions going on, do we have to then call upon the understanding to make sense of it, which can lead us in some bad yet some good ways. Now it's on that note that we move into the third and final subchapter here of consciousness into force and the understanding. So up until now we've come to understand that the whole uh, the whole process looks at a thing as being kind of universal because it embodies both what is specific and universal to it. That is it really encapsulates everything within itself. So when we are dealing with the understanding or with perception it might not be aware of this. It might not turn that back upon itself, at which point the process has not been you know, completed. And that he says, or Hegel says, it's the responsibility of the phenomenological observer, that is, someone who sees something out there and then tries to see it within themselves, that is the fact that the thing is comprised of a universality as well as a plurality. It's only when recognizing that that we can then turn it upon ourselves and can the process of self-movement, perpetual movement, keep going. So here we get introduced with a new concept, and that is the concept of force, as per the subchapter title, Force and the Understanding. So force is what kind of makes all things come together. It is what, what allows a thing to be both what he calls solicited and to be solicitor. So if you are a thing, you are solicited by various properties that kind of imbue themselves on you, and you are a solicitor in that you call upon those things to act upon you. So force is a kind of universal medium that gives a possibility to these tensions existing on a thing. It is what kind of pulls the two, kind of keeps them in constant uh, motion. So for him, he says that force itself because, as I said, everything we encounter here is going to also be, have its own tension. Force itself has a tension between itself being the solicitor and itself being solicited, where it's being taken on and it is also taking things on as in its constant movement. So no side that is of uh, a subject or a thing, that is the side that is a plurality or one of universality, is a thing in itself that is it's not just always already determined it is instead uh they they are necessary in order for either to exist so you cannot bracket one off from the other so the understanding doesn't always know this especially when it comes down to force where it sees force as just being another thing that exists in the world in relation to other things it the understanding does not recognize force as being a thing for itself 
only when that happens, only when it does it recognize the thing for itself, that is, it it is able to internalize both the negative and the positive of force, can it do that to itself, right? So what that means then, or what that does, is it deliver, delivers us from the sensuous world to the super sensible world. Because if we think that there are just things in themselves, out there, that are determined just in relation to other things, then we are dealing with you know abstract appearance concepts that don't actually get at uh, the kind of movement that all things go through because they are arrested in space and time. So that instead moves us from the sensuous world that is only receives sense data into the super sensible world, which moves us from what he says, a vanishing realm of kind of appearance to what he calls a permanent beyond. But like I said, every kind of thing we arrive at is going to have its own tensions. And this super sensible world, that is the second world, or what he calls the alternative world, has its own tensions as well, where it is through consciousness, because consciousness is what is perceiving it, consciousness might only imbue it with a kind of appearance status. They might only see it as another thing in itself, because it doesn't yet, the consciousness does not yet have the capacity to maybe see it as a thing for itself. But it should be noted that the kind of appearance that consciousness fills the permanent beyond with, you know, in order to make sense of it, uh, is markedly different from the kind of appearances we see in the sensuous world. So while we are not yet, the project hasn't really gotten going yet, because we haven't moved past consciousness into self-consciousness, that is a complete for itself, because we're still in the realm of, you know, appearances. What happens is that, um, or well, anyways, as long as we're there, we haven't moved yet. And insofar as consciousness imbues the uh, other world or the super sensible world with appearances, then we could say that um, th then it is birthed from a kind of appearance in and of itself. But again, as I just said, it is a different kind of appearance for Hegel than the sens sensuous experience. And it is in this realm, you know, a realm that is supposed to lead us somewhere new but can still be kind of infiltrated by the appearance that we can find the stable image of unstable appearance. So again, we have another tension here between a thing as it is in its positive sense or in its kind of sense, and then its opposite. So stable image in unstable appearance. So this universal difference, he calls it, is what is the law of force. While there's there are always these tensions, he calls it the law of force. And we must be careful not to just uh, subsume them all under these categories, like all things within the super sensible world under these categories, because, you know, things act differently. There's not like one overarching law. And he gives the example of gravity, where like gravity is a law, but it operates very differently on different, uh, different things. And the two examples he gives are like, you know, a rock falling, and then the heavenly bodies moving, which is like, okay, okay, Hegel. Anyways, so as I just said, how there's the super sensible world is also going to be caught in these conflicts. He opposes it to another, the kind of inverse of the super sensible world that he says is always in conflict with the super sensible world, where he says, for instance, someone in the super sensible world will be considered, uh, you know, will be exalted there, will be considered righteous, whereas in the opposite world, the inverse, they are considered, you know, deplorable. And he gives the example of like punishment, where he says that punishment is what internalizes or is, um, is kind of like a proxy. It stands in for the law and it is therefore righteous. But at the same time, it mobilizes a kind of evil, what is not the same to it, uh, to the law in order to enact the law. So it's in conflict with itself because it is both for righteousness and for uh, evil, for, for, you know, criminality. So all this to say that when we think about things in uh, as distinct from one another, we have to understand that this distinction is exactly what is necessary. So only once we've accepted that, and this is kind of wrapping up this episode and this chapter, only once we've understood that is it then possible for this movement to go on. So I want to read here what he says about the law. This is on page 99. That the simple character of law is infinity means, according to what we have found, a, that it is self-identical, but it is also itself different, 
or it is self-same which repels itself from itself or sunders itself into two. What was called simple force duplicates itself and through its infinity its, infinity, its law is law. B, what is thus directed, which constitutes the parts thought of as in the law, exhibits itself as a stable existence, and if the parts are considered without the notion of the inner difference, then space and time or distance and velocity, which appear as moments of gravity, are just as indifferent and without a necessary relation to one another or to gravity itself. Then C, through the notion of inner difference, these unlike indifferent in different moments, space and time, etc., are a different difference which is no difference, or only a difference of what is self-same and its essence is unity. As positive and negative, they stimulate each other into activity. And this allows for what he calls the absolute notion or the soul of the world, arriving at this kind of infinity. So I want to read one more little section here that kind of sums up what we have. So this is on 101. Infinity, or this absolute unrest of pure self-movement in which whatever is determined in one way or another, example as being, is rather the opposite of this determinateness, this no doubt has been from the start the soul of all that has gone before, but it is in this inner world that it has first freely and clearly shown itself. Appearance, or the play of forces, already displays it, but it is an explanation, or it is as explanation that it first freely stands forth and in being finally an object for consciousness as that which it is, consciousness is thus self-consciousness. The understanding's explanation is primarily only the description of what self-consciousness is. It supersedes the difference present in the law, differences which have already become pure differences but are still indifferent, and posits them as a single unity in force. So he's describing here the transition from consciousness to a consciousness that turns itself back onto itself in self-consciousness. And it is here that, in his words, meaning, perceiving, and the understanding vanish. Okay, so that wrapped up that first episode of Hegel. I imagine this will take maybe two, maybe hopefully only two more, but we'll see, maybe three more. Anyways, I hope you got something out of it. If uh, you did, you know, that's great. I want to give a shout out to Nick uh, Nicholas, uh, my patron, um, and James, uh, you know, your help is much appreciated to keep this going. Uh, and for anyone that, you know, you listen this far, thanks a lot. Catch you next Saturday at noon.